You're listening to the Futurize This podcast, your guide to the workplace of tomorrow. Today, we're joined by Stefano Puntoni, professor and co-director of AI at the Wharton School. With a background in marketing from the London Business School and a foundation in statistics and economics, Stefano is at the forefront of exploring AI's role in society and its interaction with humanity. His work, published in top journals, investigates AI's societal impact and transformative potential. In our discussion, we'll cover the evolving AI landscape, human and AI collaboration, ethical AI use, and how AI is reshaping innovation and addressing modern challenges like loneliness. So, buckle up and prepare to broaden your horizons as we futurize a discussion about connecting academic insights with real-world AI advancements. Let's begin our odyssey with Stefano. Stefano, welcome uh, to the Futurize This podcast. Um, super happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. The pleasure. Absolutely. Um, I want to jump right in with you. Um, I want to take you back to uh, November 2022. Um, OpenAI releases uh, DaVinci 3.5, and you are behind your laptop, and you start interacting with it. And I'm curious, what did you think? I think it's probably similar experience to what many people um, have had at that time, which was, this is like living a sci-fi movie. Um, you know, we've had chatbots getting better and uh, over already a period of a couple of years, of course, and uh, we've gotten used to seeing those chatbots buttons appearing on websites whenever we try to get customer service or whatever. But this was feeling qualitatively different to me in the... Um, just the quality of the interaction, the, uh, um, yeah, I think for a lot of jobs, honestly can do a better job than I can. Yeah. And uh, I had not expected uh, chatbots to get there this fast for sure. And I think this is what many people were thinking. And uh, it's been great. I mean, from it's been, you know, exciting. I think as a business professor, obviously you're always looking at what uh, are the implications of these things, why does it work, where we're going to go with this. And uh, there is so much, that had happened in the last, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months, that uh, it's even hard. It's a bit overwhelming, to be honest. I think, I don't know if you feel like that, but uh, I do. it's even hard to keep track. I mean, every day there's new papers and new releases and, uh, you know, whatever. Absolutely. I know. I, I mean, I was talking to my, <clears throat> to my friend who's also in technology, and he said, well, you're, Apple or the, does like uh, every year they do like a presentation of new products and, you know, all these AI companies do it every four weeks. So that's, uh, that's pretty overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. And, and when, you were, when you were in those, uh, that situation uh, in November, I'm curious with your background and all your knowledge in this space, um, what were your first prompts? How did you interact with it first? I think I asked it to do a um, poetry about my uh, favorite uh, soccer team. I think if I... <laughs> <laughs> I might have been I think everybody started with the most stupid things you know like uh, you know like a gimmick almost you know like can you uh, write a limerick about yeah. uh, AI or uh, you know um, or I think what a lot of people do can you uh, write my bio <laughs> uh, yeah. you know that, that kind of stuff um, but I what I did was to to pretty quickly try to you know in a half uh, systematic way trying to explore it and uh, get it to uh, to do things, you know, um, 
so a bit of jailbreaking, you know, can I, can I get it to do this? And he says, no, but what if I try this way? Can I get it to do it then? Yeah. Um, then I started to think about, um, based on frameworks I was developing, what uh, should we expect it to do well? And then test, can it do that well? And then, yeah, wow, I can really do a great job. And then uh, things that I thought would not be able to do based on the same ideas. And then say, hmm, actually, I can do quite a bit there too. Uh, so that was uh, beating my expectations. Then as you work more with it, you realize that actually it does have quite some limits. And I think understanding those limits is going to be crucial for people as they think about deploying it in business. You know, Certain things can be really trusted to do. Other things can be trusted to do with a lot of supervision and some guardrails. Other things probably not trusted at all. Yeah. yeah. And what were the first things you, you discovered like, you quickly discovered, hmm, this is something I would not use it for. So, uh, you know, anything that um, you, uh, anything, and I don't think I say anything particularly insightful here, but I think anything that uh, um, where information veracity and reliability is very, very important. Um, so I did try to say imagine as an academic, you would do, say, a literature review. So I say, okay, can you tell me what are the key papers in this area and how do yeah. they fit together? That kind of stuff, you have to do very, you know, you have to be very careful because it makes things up. I mean, it would uh, create uh, references out on nothing and yeah. it would, uh, you know, invent theories and things like that. So anything where you know accuracy is going to be crucial yeah. and where um, quality control is not obvious, uh, then, uh, then I think there you need to be very careful. Yeah. Anything that requires theory of mind doesn't do very well often. Yeah. If it does well, it does it because it parrots what it finds in training data. So it gives maybe the um, appearance of theory of mind, but it has none. So uh, anything that yeah. requires truly understanding what another pe person is experiencing is not going to be able to do well. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's a good. I think it's a good bridge. I want to talk about later. We're going to talk about the adoption in business based the practical. Um, uh, appliance in business, um, but I want to first talk about the, the human impact and the psychological impact um, of AI um, on humans, basically. And that whole theory of mind—you uh, speak a lot about that in your in your um, studies as well, and and what you're communicating to the world. I would almost say, um, can you speak about and explain um, how important the theory of mind aspect is? and how it's impacting the relationship between humans and AI. So uh, let, let's uh, like uh, zoom out for a second to try to understand how, I think uh, at some level, to understand how to use large language models, you do have someone, you need some understanding of the mechanics and how this thing works. And maybe a useful analogy would be that uh, distinction that almost like a cliche everybody in business has heard between correlation is not causation. You know, the idea that uh, uh, two phenomena may co-vary, they may co-occur, go up and down together uh, because, um, you know, they just happen to cause one another. You know, for example, uh, rainfall is a function of cloud cover to some extent because unless you have clouds, you cannot rain. Uh, but uh, other times you have phenomena that are co-occurring, they are um, moving together, they're correlated, but they're not caused by one another, maybe because they're caused by a third variable that happens to influence both. The example I often make when I teach is um, ice cream sales and shark attacks. 
where you observe a very uh, close correspondence between the two, that they are not driven by a causal relationship. It is not the case that when you eat a lot of ice cream, you go into the water and then, uh, you know, sharks uh, can smell the vanilla and think, oh, hmm, that's, that mm-hmm. sounds a nice meal for me. No, it's not like that. It is simply that people bathe and eat ice cream during summer. And obviously, they cannot be eaten by a shark unless they get into the water. So, uh, you know, this is a spurious correlation. Okay, so what uh, um, predictive analytics models do is try giving an output, um, um, you know, that we want to predict. What are the variables we can use to make that prediction? You will build a predictive model based on a lot of inputs. Imagine y equal a function of x's, like a linear model or whatever. And, uh, you know, the more x's you get to uh, into the model, the more sophisticated the model becomes in terms of the number of parameters and the structure of it. And then the better it'll get on making that prediction. And um, the trick that AI tools have been using um, is basically um, relying on neural network architecture, which is essentially Maybe you can think of it as a regression of steroids where you have an enormous number of parameters trying to make predictions about an outcome. And they're very effective at that. But like everybody says, you know, this is also another cliche that, uh, you know, neural networks are a black box. So you, you don't know why, um, you know, have these weights in a network that produce a prediction. And you don't know exactly why that prediction is being made. And uh, um, in other words, these neural networks are great at making predictions, but they are not necessarily causal. They are not necessarily telling you why things happen. And the large language models are just an instantiation of these neural networks for the purpose of natural language processing, NLP. They are basically you know, um, very clever ways of deploying prediction technology um, such that uh, we can now predict the next word in a sentence. But essentially, all of this to say they are correlation machines. They are prediction machines. They are not uh, um, telling causal stories. They have no understanding of anything as such. And uh, um, a lot of the failures of AI, the systematic ones, really are emerging from that. There is this working paper um, by uh, um, psychologists um, at Princeton where they look at the systematic failures of GPT. And there is this very um, interesting example where they are looking at GPT's ability to solve simple linear equations. Now, GPT is not meant to solve math. The point is just to try to understand its limitations so we can understand its capabilities. And, uh, and what uh, they have two very similar linear equations. I believe one is like a y equal uh, 5, 6 plus x plus 32 or something like that, a, a simple linear equation. And then there is another one which is almost identical. Uh, and it can do the first one, it cannot do the second one. And the reason for that is that the first one is a conversion of Celsius to Fahrenheit. So it's a formula that appears in the corpus of data used to train the algorithm many, many times. And so it had seen it. And because the algorithm has seen it, it can, make, uh, can produce an output. Uh, while the second one, although the equation looks almost identical, it is unable to solve it because it hasn't seen it in the training data. Mm. And so in other words, GPT doesn't know how to do math, but it knows how to replicate patterns that it's seen in previous yeah. data. So even going back to the temperature equation, it can solve the equation for common temperature numbers, yeah. like you know, Fahrenheit 65, it can do that. But say Fahrenheit 550, that hardly ever is not a temperature that occurs on planet Earth normally. So you don't uh, have it in the training data and you cannot solve that one. So it's all about have you seen it before and can replicate the same pattern. That doesn't mean it understands how to solve linear equation. Of course, you can get 
ChatGPT to solve linear equation by asking it to write a Python code that will solve a linear equation. And there is a lot in the training data on how to do that. So you can do that. And once you have the Python code, you'll do it correctly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you have to think about this way, you know, so, okay, what is it that I'm asking you to do? What yeah. kind of cognitive ability does the question require? And if it's uh, more on the side of causation rather than correlation, then you have to think about, uh, you know, under which condition it's going to be able to answer it and which one not. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at that, then the question that pops up in my mind is, <clears throat> if you look at the human impact of AI and these language models, how is that influencing the way we are making our decisions? Um, and is it in, in which way do you believe it's imp uh, impl uh, impacting our way we make decisions and, and human behavior? Um, you probably can answer that question many ways. Um, so if you think about decision-making in particular, I think we have a tool at our disposal that can help us think. Um, we can outsource thinking to it too. I don't know if you tried that. Did you try to use it for product comparisons, for example? Imagine you want to yeah. buy a bicycle or something. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you try it? Yeah. yeah. Does it work for you? Um, I well, work is. The, I, I tried it to to see what it comes up with. So I didn't use it in a very practical way. Uh, I tried to, for example, say, "Hey, uh, can you give me outline uh, 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 ten software vendors that could be most suitable to solve this problem?" And I think it comes up with the uh, the biggest brands. It doesn't particularly go deeper than that. Mm -hmm. Again, it's all a function of what's in the training data. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I tried it for. Um, I'm thinking of buying a car, so I started basically chatting with it to explore. Given basically, I tell it what I care about, and then say, then given these um, requirements, what do you think will be car models that fit this kind of budget? Yeah. And then uh, what I've seen, and I know nothing about cars, so I had time mm -hmm. judging actually. But uh, uh, yeah, it seems pretty reasonable. Yeah. So that was a good starting point for my search. Yeah. Yeah. But can you can you judge if it is reasonable? Because if you, if you, that's the thing, right? Yeah. So that that's actually something interesting about this. This is something that uh, um, actually the fact that we have this capable um, helper now doesn't mean that that, that uh, human expertise is not valuable because uh, it takes a lot of expertise to be able to judge the quality of the output. Yeah. So in a way, what this uh, technology is doing is to some extent elevate the expertise of everybody because I think, you know, almost everybody now can do an 80% good job on most things, even though alone you wouldn't be able to. So yeah. there is that kind of equalizing power of this technology to uh, imagine you're not a native English speaker and you want to write a text in English and you're always at the disadvantage, um, uh, you know, versus native speakers. Well, you know, a lot of that disadvantage now might go away yeah. um, you know, as an example. But um, at the same time, you know, it's uh, crucial because of, especially when there are, uh, you know, big stakes involved, that you actually have someone that is able to exercise uh, strong quality control and use it for the, for the best. So I think a way, a metaphor that I use is that in the past, we were artists, we were creating things. And now increasingly, we are um, art critics. You know, we are not creating things, but we are evaluating the quality of an output. Yep. And it yep. takes expertise, you know, like... You could say, oh, you know, being an artist is harder than being an art critic. Well, you know, to be a good art critic, you have to be very skilled. You have to have a lot of knowledge and understanding in order to judge an output. And I think it's a little bit like that with GPT, where it can do a lot of things, but do you have the expertise to judge um, yeah. how to best use it, how to, uh, you know, 
you know, evaluate the quality of the output and the accuracy of the output or yeah. any other dimension. Of yeah. It. And how, how do you then see the line of trust um, that we have um, in AI right now? Because I think that is fundamental. I think, I, you know, if you, if you think about, you know, your health, you first trust Google these days when you're ill and then you trust the doctor. Um, but there is some kind of trust that we have when we look something up on the internet that the information there is right. Um, and how do you look at that if you look at the impact on humans, uh, the human impact of AI uh, and the line of trust that we, uh, is it going up? And how do humans currently interact with it? And will that be, could that lead, into, uh, could that lead to issues uh, on the long term? I think there are a bunch of uh, moving targets uh, at the same time. On the one hand, the technology is getting better fast. So we were referring to 3.5, released in November last year. Yeah. 4 was already a lot better on a lot of things. Yeah. And uh, 4 so far has been hard to beat, but it will be beaten. So th these things are getting better and better. Not yeah. only the algorithms are getting better, but also the um, interfaces are getting better. The modularity is getting better. So if you have the experience of ChatGPT Plus now versus six months ago, the range of capabilities already changed quite a bit. So that's one moving target. The technology is getting better, and if it gets yeah. better, we can trust it more to do more things. Then there is also our experience with the technology is increasing. As more and more people spend time with it and get benefits from it, they'll also learn how to best integrate it in the workflows. And uh, so they'll, um, you know, trial and error to some extent, but just, you know, get it to do stuff and say, okay, um, I actually realized that things like email writing and document summarization, they can do very, very well. Yeah. Well, then I'm going to lean on that quite a lot for those tasks. I don't think it's that great yet to help me generate a pitch for a client. And um, at least not in this context, then probably I'm not going to use it very much. That doesn't mean I cannot get any benefit. For example, I might be able to write a draft uh, document, maybe a quick pitch made of bullet points, and then I get uh, ChatGPT to fill the blanks and make it look nice and, and uh, you know, whatever. So you still can benefit from the technology, but you need to have a lot of... Um... No, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's like a theory of mind, but it's a theory of alien mind. So you as a user, you need to have a theory of mind. Uh, what can ChatGPT, how, how does it think? What can it do, what it cannot do? And that's something you can read about, but ultimately you have to experience it by trying it out. Yeah, but in the end, like you having in-depth knowledge about how it functions, but let's say like like 98% no, of the people don't. Uh, so they see this as a, something you interact with and, and tells the truth. So that is like... Yeah, so there is danger in the... In the I mean... It, it's a very powerful technology. It's been deployed at incredible speed and scale throughout society globally. Yeah. In many ways, it's amazing. I mean, the GPT that I'm using, the same GPT that you're using, the same GPT that someone in India might be using or someone in Indonesia might be using or whatever. Yeah. So it's a global gift in a way that we have yeah. this uh, additional source of intelligence. Exactly. That can, can only be good. I mean, more yeah. intelligence must be better. <laughs> but... Um, at the same time, you know, with any powerful technology, when it gets deployed very fast, it gets deployed in a regulatory vacuum, for example. The, yeah. the regulation cannot keep up. It's just going too fast. And uh, um, I hope that this time we do a better job than we did with social media, for example, where yeah. we've seen something very similar, where the technology took, out, took off like a rocket. You had this enormous uh, adoption. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you have, say, a billion people connected on social media platforms. And then you start saying that for a number of reasons, including you know the business models that were chosen in order to facilitate that deployment, 
all of a sudden you have some massive societal issues ranging from you know um, adolescent uh, uh, well-being to uh, you know uh, fake news and uh, yeah. polarization and uh, whatever and um, and that has been quite bad and i um, wish that uh, we've had uh, maybe a better conversation about uh, the way that that technology was going to impact well-being and um, society yeah. yeah now are we going to do a better job this time I don't know. I think there are some good signs that I think there is a better conversation going on about this. Um, regulatory conversations have been faster to emerge, and um, the companies themselves. I think you know you can debate about this, but if you look at even the uh, all the drama with OpenAI in uh, in the past weeks before you know um, last year, I think you've seen certainly there is a lot of awareness about the fact that this is a very powerful technology. It's going to have many many effects. Some of them might be bad and so let's sure that let's make sure the best we can that we can capitalize on the great on the good which is a lot and uh, while minimizing and being aware of the negative so i don't know i'm mildly optimistic yeah. but the case of social media makes you a bit you know worried what, what is your idea on that like the how it can shape like maybe a negative has a negative influence on self-perception i think yes and no i think actually we I, I actually think that my concerns about AI are slightly different from the one that I would have on social media, actually. Yep. And um, social media is designed to engage, right? It's about grabbing attention. Uh, ChatGPT is not, you, you pay a subscription. The, the point uh, of OpenAI is not to, you know, hold you hostage and keep you on ChatGPT for as many hours as possible, right? So it's a different kind of incentive from the point of view of the company. And so that's an important difference. And also, I think, um, the um, ChatGPT may, in fact, have positive effects for mental health. It may provide, in many situations, for, for a, and it is not there yet, but I think it might get there fairly soon, where the technology is reliable and safe enough where it can be used for mental health purposes in some way, uh, where now you have a on-demand, uh, um, you know, I don't say a therapist, but someone who can uh, counsel you and yeah. uh, provide you with some support um, for example, it could be a tool in cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. Be, uh, um, you know, I, I think actually no, it can I, have a lot. It's, 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 it's already pretty good. I, I tested, for example, like a use case of, hey, I'm the, I'm the patient, you are the therapist, give me a consult following the method of levels um, technique. And he said, okay, let's have a chat. And that's actually already pretty good yes. without any context about me. Yeah, and it's, it doesn't even need to be fine tuned. It doesn't need exactly. to be just a simple prompt. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have a paper that just got published um, four months ago where we're looking at uh, uh, apps that were designed for companionship and, and uh, social purposes. Basically, you know, apps that will create you a synthetic friend. Let's put it this way. Yeah. And. Um, and the app that we tested, this was, you know, academic research is not the fastest, so it takes a while before the paper is published. But these were prior to GPT 3.5 even. Yeah. And uh, at that point, the apps were not always great at recognizing mental health issues. These apps were not designed to be a mental health support tool. The problem is with a lot of technology, it doesn't necessarily get uh, um, used by users the way that the producers of that technology intended it. People might do whatever with it. And people experiencing a mental health crisis might end up uh, confiding in a chatbot that wasn't designed for that purpose. Yeah. We were asking is, are there any you know, consumer welfare risks associated with that? 
and we do find that there are, where people may engage in conversations with AI that suggest quite severe mental health problems. And yet the chatbot is not answering appropriately, is not providing mental health resources, is not yeah. sounding any warning to anyone who might try to address the situation. Um, but we do see that these chatbots are getting much better. And I think GPT-4 is already doing, I think, a much better job. We haven't systematically tested it for this, so I, I cannot really say. But my impression, my prediction will be that it does a lot better already. And um, it will do better yet next year. So actually, for mental health, it could be an ally rather than an enemy, I'd say. That not to mean that you cannot imagine scenarios where this can go all right. I mean, uh, that could easily happen. Um, but overall, I'm more worried about, uh, um, you know, issues around, uh, you know, jobs and uh, issues around, uh, um, you know, uh, information veracity and accuracy of information. Um, so I'm more worried yeah. about those kind of issues. <laughs> more than I think that, you know, if you think about it from the human impact point of view, there are a lot of questions that pop into people's mind where all of a sudden you're able to interact with an alien intelligence or artificial intelligence that is just so capable. Yeah. You thought only you could do this. Well, think again. And uh, that can be challenging for people right? to accept, for example, that they built decades to build uh, you know, professional skills in a particular domain and they feel pride and they feel a sense of achievement. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you have a chatbot that came, you know, was published yesterday and all of a sudden can do a lot of what yeah. you took 20 years to learn. It can be challenging. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that that's can be definitely be challenging. I think that's a good bridge to like the the, the practical uh, a, uh, adoption of, of AI in, in business. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> you spoke a lot about this and uh, talk about human replacement versus human flour uh, flourishing. And I'm curious to your, you just uh, spoke about the concerns you have, it could, uh, the impact it could have on jobs. Um, so I'm curious, how do you currently look at the current state of the practical adoption of AI in business? First, I don't think we are seeing uh, yet an impact of AI on jobs. I think, uh, if anything, the job market is very, very tight. Um, so there's hardly unemployment right now. So I think the concern is more like longer term. The second thing is... Um, that uh, you know, the technology is changing. Companies are start learning now to understand what they can do and how they can use it. So it's very much of a, um, still up in the air. I don't think anyone has the answer. People who tell you, I know exactly what to say generative AI can do for your organization. Yeah, I think you know you have to take claims with a pinch of salt. Everybody's experimenting, and I think we're seeing use cases emerging where clearly there's going to be some role for generative AI in organizations um, to the extent to which you can deploy it fully in this context or another one is something that companies will have to try. But we did the research last summer, so this is already back from August. We surveyed around 700 senior executives across um, different industries in the United States. These were all uh, large corporates. And uh, already just last summer, we saw a very high level of um, adoption for a wide range of use cases. We had a list of about 20. And uh, we found that the lowest endorsed use case, and by endorsed, I mean either the company, the respondent said the company are already working on it or they're planning to start exploring this use case in the coming couple of years or something like that. So it's, uh, you know, an intention or already a current project. And what we find is that the lowest one was endorsed by 57% of respondents, so still a majority. That was smart contract. And mm -hmm. I think contract, that's interesting because, mm -hmm. It's a context where veracity is very important. You don't want anything to end up in a contract which shouldn't be there because it might pose enormous problems later down the line. Yeah. And uh, and yet, you know, um, you can also see a lot of value in 
helping you craft context because a lot of contracts are very standard and repetitive and things like that. The highest use cases were actually close to the 90s, where almost everybody say that they are doing already work in this area or they're planning to do it in short mm -hmm. order. And these were actually the marketing professor was interesting because a lot of content creation kind of jobs, which are often related to marketing, mm -hmm. um, things like, you know, um, you know, creating documents, uh, summarizing documents, market research, data analysis, um, stuff like that. Um, so we see this technology is not around the corner. It's not like, you know, you know, just to be a bit cheeky, it's not the metaverse, which is going to be the next big thing for 20 no. years. It is actually already here. Majority of respondents in our survey, I think it was something like 58% said that they already used generative AI in their work. So imagine basically within a year, you have already over half of executives in the US say they're using it. Yeah. And that's pretty crazy uh, adoption curve, right? Yeah, I think there's a difference between using AI as a feature, I would almost say, to say, hey, I have this small business process, for example, I can summarize my business meetings so that I can, they don't have to attend them all, like a, a use case like that, or hey, I am spending X of my time on market research and I'm asking, I'm collaborating with ChatGPT and I'm actually accelerating my only, my day-to-day -day work. But I think there's this, still this gap that a lot of companies realize, hey, there will be a chance that we fundamentally need we are going to fundamentally change the way we operate, um, uh, flip our business model, maybe move from a more technology-first approach to a human-first approach. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at that gap, um, how do you look at the last, like, say, six months um, in the evolution and the maturity of companies in that process? I think a lot of learning in, in the survey, we had uh, questions also about how do you plan to explore learning? A lot of them have already dedicated teams for generative AI. Many of them, uh, I mean, I think on average, they reported a 25% year on year increase in investments in this area. That's pretty large. Yeah. And, um, and also, um, we see consultancies moving into this space very fast. Um, I think uh, PwC claimed to have invested a billion in, uh, in generative AI to help support clients. Um, McKinsey and many others are really putting, uh, you know, this is clearly going to be a booming business to help yeah. uh, customers understand. So there's a lot of efforts to learn. I see, I see it, as you said, there's basically, there's a lot of fruits on the tree and some of them are low hanging and some of them are really hard to get. And so I think I'd advise companies to start with low hanging one mm. and learn uh, while they already plan for the ladder that is needed to get to the higher ones. And uh, take, for example, you're talking now, you were making the example of market research. Let, let's look at it for a second. What could you do? Well, you could use um, GPT to support existing market research projects. Like, for example, imagine you're doing some qualitative research and you can use ChatGPT to help you summarize the findings, identify yeah. parallels and themes. And you can use ChatGPT to help you design a survey. For example, you have a standardized perceptual measure scale that you want to use in the context of your brand and you say, okay, adapt it to this brand X or, you know, a lot of things like that. ChatGPT could be helping you uh, deal with, the, um, um, you know, with the, with the standard tasks that you would have operated yourself. But then you have the further one and say, hmm, what if I can use GPT not just to help me collect data from consumers, but to simulate consumer data. So now you're in the domain of synthetic data where you start saying, well, you know, ChatGPT is trained on the entire internet. So 
you can say everything that has been said is in there. So that means he knows a lot about what people think, what people like, the differences between, say, brands, what are the different pain points in different industries, you know, what are barriers to adoptions and, and so forth. And so could I actually extract value from my business by leveraging that, uh, that knowledge that is there in the algorithm? So um, the early evidence is just starting. The first papers are coming out suggest that indeed there will be situations where um, a large language model can approximate human responses pretty closely. So now if you understand which one these are, and I don't think many companies are there yet, but if they do, then they could imagine now having some kind of framework, a template that tells you, okay, if these are, you know, if you can check these three boxes, then it means that uh, um, GPT will be able to give you highly accurate uh, approximations of what a sample of human respondents would have said. Yeah. And then if you know that, you might be able to get that data and insight at the, you know, just uh, in a second. And yeah. so it could replace existing market research processes. It could streamline them. Maybe you were going to plan to do 10 interviews with senior buyers in this B2B industry. Expensive, hard to do. What if I now I do it with ChatGPT and I only need two instead of 10 as a sanity check just to make sure that I'm not off the rail? Yeah. Um, or it could, uh, um, in some situation, provide insight where currently there are none. You shouldn't yeah. forget that many, many decisions in organizations are not really taken based on data. You know, we have the time and the money to collect uh, research data only in the, for the decisions that are really important. For a lot of things that we do, we kind of make them based on our gut feeling or based on what we did yesterday, based on what the competition is doing or based on what seems reasonable, common sense. Yeah. And that's fine. But what if now you couldn't reach a lot of those uh, decisions that are more like a data in, in the data desert, let's say, you might actually bring in uh, large language models and they can provide some support and sometimes that might improve the quality of decision making. Yeah. Um, so this is just a, you know, pick one example, market research yeah. and make a little overview. And now you just see the range of applications and some of them being, you know, very low hanging fruit you can start today and others being things that, you know, it's going to require a lot of validation, a lot of testing yeah. um, and a lot of understanding, but we might actually get a lot of value eventually from it. I read an article from Accenture who said like they did, they obviously the consultancy firms will make so much money because there is this information gap and they will jump into that and, but they will, the, the practical solutions uh, between the information gap and the practical solutions, there's an, an insanely big world in this case, I guess. And they also said that their first conclusion was that even if companies have the high willingness to actually start integrated in business, it requires that your own data infrastructure is is on par. And especially for large organizations, um, that is going to be a challenge. So I also believe, I'm curious how you see that, that these mid-sized, relatively younger companies with a better agility can gain like an incredible advantage over big and large corporations. You're totally right. I think you're totally right. And when uh, in our survey, we actually notice a significant negative correlation between uh, generative AI adoption and the size of the firm. Yeah. Now, the, um, the sample is made by, I think the threshold for being part of the survey was 50 million revenue a year. So they all be companies. But within that sample, we still have from billion to 50 million. So there's a lot of spread in revenues. And we do observe that those smaller companies, you know, we don't know why. We don't know what is the mechanism that explains that. It could be that they are less averse to risk taking. 
than big organizations could be that they are just faster in the decision pro processes because there are less you know la layers in the organization to make decisions it could be that they are you know eager to make more of a difference because they are not uh, winning right now right so these are the challengers so they may be you know just more ambitious i don't know what uh, it might be that the stakes are higher for the large organization making a mistake must be very costly in terms of reputation and uh, financial impact maybe you know they are less prepared to take that risk um, you know rationally it's not just a matter of being slow or whatever so there are many reasons but uh, i think you're right that this is a technology that will be especially exciting to companies that um, um, you know are currently not really the top dog and uh, go back again to market research you know if you say okay i mean thinking about maybe exploring the notion of synthetic data and getting this kind of artificially generated consumer responses kind of interesting maybe we want to kind of put our toes in the water and start seeing what this can do on the other hand I mean, we are pretty happy with our current process. And because we are a big company, we have a lot of money and we can do it. If you are a small company and you don't have a lot of money and you can't do it, then all of a sudden this is a lot more interesting because yeah. now the alternative is doing nothing. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, um, you know, the position of every organization is different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, where I see the difference is that you can interface with AI. So for example, you are a large corporation and you use ChatGPT <clears throat> and you can basically see it as one of your tools to do your job better. And I do believe that if you look at the practical adoption um, in business, that it is how do we collaborate with it? And to me, interfacing and really collaborating, really mm -hmm. seeing it as a companion, that I think that will have the most impact, uh, fundamental impact on business. However, to actually not be just an interface that you can launch on your, in your browser, but to really have it as a collaborator, it needs to integrate with the information of yourself, of your company. And that step, I think, is something that where Microsoft is obviously with Copilot has a huge advantage because they are already in the ecosystem and information streams of companies. But I believe in all these different verticals, there will be... Uh, new experience layers over the amount of information that you have in your company uh, to collaborate with it, not to just interface with it. Yeah, well, I had a, a preview with Microsoft of what is going coming to market in the next uh, six to yep. twelve months, and uh, they make a big deal about uh, having basically a, a three-part process where you have the large language model would be probably gpt4 or its uh, su successor would be piloting basically you know uh, driving the copilot kind of uh, um, application then you have the productivity uh, suite of microsoft this will be the outlook and the powerpoint and the excel yeah. and so forth and then the third pillar of the system will be what they call the personal graph and this will be all the information that they have about you, all your emails, all your files, all your PowerPoints or whatever. And the interesting things would be that uh, the effective and safe deployment of this three-part system will rely on organizations rethinking the way that they organize data. Meaning now you just save a file on your drive. You save an, uh, you know, uh, an email on, in a folder, in your inbox, whatever. And increasingly in the future, what you'll need to do when you create something new, when you create a new file or new presentation or whatever, new email, you will need to tell Microsoft the level of clearance that is associated with that information. For example, this is for me only, this is for my team, this yeah. is for my, you know, for my division, this is for the whole company, this is for everybody. 
Um, and uh, then once you've done that and every piece of information that Microsoft has about you in OneDrive and the email and whatever has been categorized according to this vertical hierarchy of uh, clearance, then they'll be able to pull information at the appropriate level given what you're trying to do. So now I'm writing an email to my client and I'm asking Copilot to summarize uh, or make a pitch or help me reply to an interaction of some sort. Then Microsoft will be able to access the appropriate amount of information and piece of information such that the, I'm not ending up revealing my cost structure to the client or, or anything else that I'm yeah. not going to do. And so, but to do that, that's going to be a huge transition for companies. Imagine where everything in the cloud about a company would have to have a tag saying, who can see this? That's not something that we can do right now, right? So it's going to be a long process uh, before companies get there. But then you'll be able to really truly do this collaboration, like you're saying, where I'll feel more comfortable outsourcing things and providing more like a quality control and supervisory role and uh, really truly benefit from these large language models in a way that now wouldn't be safe to do. Absolutely. No, I fully agree. And they are still on this personal productivity, like in that personal productivity area where you enable have the AI-enabled employee. Um, do you see it as a risk as well that there's, I think, one player that's now so, has such a huge advantage in that space? Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Microsoft has an enormous um, advantage because of their, you know, dominant position in, uh, you know, existing software markets, including yeah. obviously... And, and hardware, you know, yeah. TV and hardware. But... Um, on the other hand, I mean, um, and there are not going to be many of these um, large language models at the cutting edge, right? At the leading edge of development, there's going to be only a few companies that can do it. It's going to be obviously OpenAI through the partnership with Microsoft, have the resources to do it. Um, Google, you know, they invented the transformer architecture Absolutely. that is powering the large language models. They'll be there. We'll have to see a bit how this Gemini is going to develop and what they're going to do with it. But there's no doubt that they're going to be a powerful player. Now, say Anthropic with the support of Amazon. I think there's a lot that can happen there. And there's a bunch of others, including, you know, open source models and others. So I think there is a, a fairly cluttered landscape in that regard, although there's not going to be a million different uh, models. There's going to be a few. And in a way, if you think about building applications off these models, they're all using the same models. I mean, the barrier to entry are actually very low. Um, so, um, you know, you are pinging AP, the API OpenAI for uh, for ChatGPT. Well, I can do the same. And so yeah. the matter, the, the difference here, essentially you could say from the point of view of a lot of users, these models are a commodity. Yeah, all yeah, I fully agree. Right? Yeah. So the uh, the differentiation, where are you going to find value? How are you going to create value by using LLMs? Well, you know, the way I think about it, you have really three elements there. And I think it's consistent with your vision of this. But one element is a person, you know, the, the human who is going to use the, the AI. Then you have the AI. And then you have the way that these two elements, the human and the AI, are going to work together. And so, okay, let's go through the list and see what we can do for competitive advantage. Well, the human, okay. We want to get the best humans you can. That's, that's where competitive advantage is coming. That's the whole point of HR. Hire the best talent you can find. That will not change. And, uh, and, you know, and that has not changed and will not change. We are going to fight over talent because talent is scarce. And we'll do that. What talent is might change. Like the kind of skills the companies need might evolve with time. So maybe now we care less about this and more about that. So it's not like it's a static game. But essentially, it's still the same game. We're going to have to compete with other players for the best talent. I don't think that's going to change fundamentally. Then you have the AI. Like we said now, 
Well, you know, from the point of view of uh, the creators uh, of the models, then clearly they're competing with each other for making the best models. So uh, Google and Microsoft and whatever, they will be competing there. But from uh, the point of view of everybody else, they're using the same models. It's a commodity. So yep. that's not going to be a source of competitive advantage. If they can do it with ChatGPT, you can do it with ChatGPT. The third thing is the integration, and that's where the competitive advantage is going to come. It has to come from there because there's no other source. Absolutely. So the companies that are going to win in this space, so those are going to have a superior understanding of what AI can do better than humans or worse than humans and vice versa, and understand the consequences of that by in terms of designing workflows, designing interfaces, designing products. And so... It's all got to be about that collaboration part, that integration part. And and I mean that's maybe going back to your point earlier. Uh, what the challenge will be in 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 for bigger corporations is it will require a level of risk taking that I think many companies are not used to take um, to actually make that leap. Um, We're going to take a lot of experimentation. I think a lot of companies yeah. ought to start with pilots and and yeah. trial things out. And for example, let's go back to the example we discussed before, synthetic data again. Well, you may have qualms and concerns about the accuracy of the synthetic data, but, you know, test it. You know, you're running yeah. market research studies. Yeah. You're doing yeah. that. Keep doing that. But yeah. now when you get the data, you're going to replicate the study using LLMs and you're going to have to... Then uh, you have a point of benchmark to assess, okay, this is ground truth. This is what people tell me. And what yeah. do I get from the LLM? Does it look like it? And uh, does it look different? Does it look better when I prompt it this way or that way? This is just a process of learning. Yeah. And if you look at the, if you connect the practical implementation and the behavioral skills uh, needed uh, to actually make the transition, what do you believe are the crucial skills for uh, talent in the future? Um, if you look at all these developments? It's the same that we've had, I think, for the past couple of decades since the digital revolution has really started going deep into companies. And that is, you know, uh, be comfortable with change. It's the hardest thing for, for us. We, we Change is hard. Yeah. And, uh, but change is going to happen no matter what you yeah. like to happen. But is that a skill? You. Is that a skill? Yeah, it, maybe it's an attitude, but it's also a skill to be yeah. able to, you know, um, adopt the new to um, question the new, so not to be uncritical. I mean, to be open to change doesn't mean, you know, the person, oh, today I'm all into crypto and tomorrow I'm all into this or whatever. It's all about really being, uh, you know, clear-minded about uh, um, where technology is heading, what uh, the technology capabilities are now and are likely to be in the short to medium term, and then the implications of that for what you have to do. But a lot of uh, companies might be slow in adopting, partly because change is so hard. It's just like yeah. you know. Yeah, and if we if we connect that to if we talk about the practical implementation, we see like how do you leverage AI? And I'm curious. So you you also spoke a lot about um, the impact on innovation, which is obviously uh, around this topic now for companies a top priority. And how do you believe um, AI is impacting um, the process of innovation in business? I think this is a very inter interesting and exciting area. I think. Do you remember at the beginning of this conversation we were talking about the art versus the art critic? Yeah. You know, think about again that metaphor. I think it's a it's useful here too, where you'd say, okay, if you look at um, imagine I know, many in the audience will have taken during the studies a course on innovation management or kind of innovation course. Typically, when you ask how do you define innovation, the standard definition in the literature is, goes something like, well, innovation is equal new and useful. 
It's basically something that is novel, and it's not just novel for novel sake. It's novel because it gets a job done. And so you have these two components to innovation. You have the innovativeness in terms of you know novel. We haven't seen it before. And then you have innovation, in, innovativeness in terms of it does the job that uh, we want to have done. And uh, if you think of innovation that way, then uh, I think um, large language models, generative AI, and all these kinds of applications, they can really help you with the new part of the equation, meaning content generation is basically almost free nowadays. You know, if I want to come up with a new brand name for a new uh, you know, uh, AI-driven uh, um, company working in the HR space, yeah, you have a little brief, you have your value proposition, you feed it to JGPT, and you ask it to come up with a million brand names. Yeah. <laughs> It'll do it. Now we have a list of a million brand names, yeah, and now what? I mean, which one yeah. is the best one? And that, that's the hard part, is now to think about, okay, now I have these options. What is the quality of these yeah. options? What is and useful? Can we, yeah. can, which is a useful one? So again, again, the point of the art and the art critic, LLMs can create content, that's the artist part, but then judging the quality of the content, that's the art critic part. And that yeah. is still something that is quite difficult for LLM to do well. And that's, I think, is going to be a lot of the... Uh, the roles of uh, humans in the innovation process is going to be about that. And so having that sense of uh, how can this particular uh, content add value somewhere. Yeah. I think we need to still, we also still need to go through like a, an evolution of our perceptions of these LLMs because, for example, in your example about brand names, I've seen people, um, well, let's let's take the example of the brand name. I think we still live in a world where if if a marketer or a brand team should come up with a brand name and it gives 50 brand names to actually evaluate with a team. The perception now can still be, ah, but you created that with, uh, with, with AI, with ChatGPT. That's not fair. As if we still like feel responsible to do it ourselves. I think there's a mental step that we need to make that we fully embrace it and see it as a strength if you do it, if you do it that way. Mm. And because it wins time and it helps you actually to, to spark creativity, it's the same when people write articles, write emails, or you say, yeah, well, it's an AI email or a cover letter. Hey, but yeah, AI did this. Yeah, okay. But what's the problem with that? Like, unless that's a... Yeah, the, appro the appropriate question is not, did AI do the email? The appropriate question is, is the email good? <laughs> exactly. Is it useful? And is it corresponding with what it actually the goal is? No. And, 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 but we're still not there. I think we still have this mental step to make that we embrace well, it. You know, but there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one is just uh, the resistance to change we were talking about before. Yeah. But there's another one. And I've done a lot of research on this and it's, uh, it's uh, threatening to us. You know, like yeah. I mentioned before, if now AI can do part of your job and you took so much pride in doing it, now all of a sudden, how do you feel about that? Yeah. And so some of the resistance to AI, I think it's partly also a psychological defense mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, we do yeah, have yeah. a lot of evidence showing that this, in, in many situations, that's indeed the case, where you would dismiss it, you would not adopt it, you would, uh, you yeah. know, uh, because well, somehow it's, uh, you know, a threat to your sense of identity, your sense of yeah. self. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, I think this is a leadership uh, responsibility to, to, you know, in a company lead by example and, and show that what the new or the desired behavior is uh, in, in teams. Um, all right. So um, I want to, as a last um, topic I want to talk about today is the topic, it's more the philosophical 
uh, and the prediction and the visions around everything that's currently happening in the AI space. We first, uh, you, you touched upon uh, this earlier is um, like, I think internet democratized information and AI is democratizing intelligence. Um, and you said like more intelligence, it should be good. Um, but we also have the doom thinkers and people that you know, ask existential questions um, if that is really the case. Um, and I'm curious to your take on that based on all your knowledge in this space. I think it is very, very difficult to make predictions beyond three years and uh, yeah. five years. And so the question would be, for example, would uh, an AI system be developed within the next 25 years that is really qualifying as a true artificial general intelligence? Yes or no? Hard to tell. Hard, hard yeah. to I mean, it seems, it seems possible. Be, it seems yeah. possible. The thing is, um, then what? So, okay, then the next question will be, to what extent would you expect an artificial intelligence system to acquire some sense of sentience and consciousness? Ooh, that's even harder. So that's more like really sci-fi-like kind of question. The problem is we don't understand how sentience and consciousness emerge in our own brain. And mm. because of that, we cannot exactly. imagine how we might emerge in another brain. Exactly. In another... Try, to replicate, try to replicate a human. Right. So we, we don't know. And I think to some extent, may or may not be a very productive conversation to have. Certainly it's an interesting one, but uh, I think to some extent it's actually um, distracting us from conversations we should be having today about uh, the risks and dangers potentially of this technology if it gets deployed so quickly and so um, yeah. and so deep in society. And rather than uh, you know having this kind of Silicon Valley discussions about the singularity, yeah. I think Fully it would be more agree. useful to think more about you know what about copyright, you know, exactly. um, yeah, yeah. what about privacy. You know, the, these things I think are more um, pressing. They are real. They're here today. And I, to, to the extent that these discussions about the existential risk of AI um, serves as a distraction to actually answer okay. those problems, is actually that's a bad thing. I, I fully agree. The, the, the thing why I ask it is that um, in that discussion or, hey, how do we make it ethical and how do we make sure it's like the, the tool that does the right thing instead of the bad thing? Um, I mean, that whole existential and doom thinking scenario is now used by uh, to actually have that conversation. So, and I think those... Definitely should be disconnected. Okay. I think that the, uh, I think that the danger is that, for example, if you think about the internet and how fast that spread it, um, you know, the infrastructure to let it spread fast was not, was not there yet. Like we had needed hardware, we needed like the network was not the problem, but actually to give people access to that network was a relatively slow process. Now with AI, the infra the infrastructure is there, so it can spread super fast. Um, so what is your um, you, you spoke about this earlier, the information velocity and the velocity where this spreads with. What do you think is the, um, what is the question there to solve? Or what is the, the step, what are the steps to take? I think for everyone in business uh, to keep up with that. So there was this conversation a few months ago, there was this public letter signed by many, many people that was calling for a slowdown in AI yeah. development, yeah. six months moratorium. I don't think that's realistic. First thing is not gonna happen. You know, say the Americans are posing development, the Chinese are not going to pose development, whatever. You know, it's, it's not, yeah. not going to happen. Um, so slowing, you cannot slow technology down. I think what you can do is to um, uh, try to uh, 
build uh, um, safety systems around the technology as much you can. And yeah. I think OpenAI, to their credit, they're being really good at this. It's very difficult to uh, get ChatGPT to do something that is very inappropriate. And that doesn't mean, I mean, there are all these stories online. I can get it to give me the recipe for a bomb by telling it that it's a cooking recipe and that my grandma is making it, whatever. You know, you can jailbreak it in some situations. Yeah. It's actually very good. It's very difficult to get ChatGPT to be racist or whatever. And yeah. previous um, previous chatbots were not like that. Right? There was these famous examples where, you know, quickly things go off the rail. And so um, we are already in a much better spot, I think, in that sense. Um, Second, I think the parallel to social media to me remains the crucial one. That one is one where we should have had very serious discussions about who should access this technology, how this technology should be designed and deployed, and we didn't. And the consequences we are paying for. And uh, I think anyone who's a parent of teenagers, you just can realize how serious the situation is. Yeah. And um, I think the, the quality of the conversation around AI is uh, order of magnitude better than the one that we had at the time about uh, about uh, social media. We are waking up now to the issue. Um, so I'm hoping, like I said, I think I'm mildly optimistic about this. But um, from the point of view of organizations, you know, you can think about the carrot, you can think about the stick. You know, uh, for you know, like the mid-sized companies that are trying to get a leg up, you know, you can see them the eagerness and the uh, um, the possibilities that seem to be now suddenly opening up. And so we should try to pursue those, and there will be enormous amount of innovation that is coming off the back of this. We'll probably yeah. be milking the current algorithm for 10, ten years just to understand what they can yeah. do, and, and then who knows how this algorithm will get better and better. Um, and um, at the same time, you also have the stick, which is um, the early evidence around the impact of this technology on productivity on important jobs, which is, you know, writing tasks and, um, you know, software development and, uh, and a lot of other tasks. The first statistics that have been coming out of the research being done in the past 12 months are all showing massive increases in productivity. And uh, depending on the study, depending on the task, depending on the measure, it varies, but they tend to be oftentimes in the range of, say, 25 to 50% increase in productivity for jobs that are really quite central to uh, um, the economic system that we have today. Yeah. And, uh, and then you look back in history and try to understand what is the parallel to this. And these are historical gains in uh, productivity when you compare it to, you know, say, even the steam engine and, and the technology that's really been revolutionary in creating wealth and economic growth. And so now the question is, when these go out of the lab into society, are we going to see the same gains? Probably not. Uh, but I think there is no doubt uh, if you just had the opportunity to play with this uh, kind of technology, if you are code doing coding, if you are doing data analysis, if you are writing documents as a job, and a lot of office work is about this stuff, um, yeah. it can be really quite a massive helper. And yeah. uh, um, so if that is a range of productivity increases we can expect to capitalize on, then not adopting it means you're going out of business. Yeah. <laughs> as simple as yeah. that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh... A debt or die mindset in that case. And um, okay, I, I'm. I have a last question. So uh, to 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 round this conversation, wrap this conversation up. Um, can you share what uh, what's the next study paper you're working on um, that's coming up? I have this very cool paper we were talking about just before our uh, our talk today, where we are looking at um, uh, relational AI and um, loneliness. And what we're finding is that um, 
people don't believe that uh, interaction with chatbots are very effective at uh, mitigating feelings of loneliness. Um, and they do so because they don't believe that uh, a relationship, a friendship with a chatbot can be a true friendship. And uh, But actually, when we get people to interact with chatbots, and the study that we've done so far are like a one-shot short-term interaction. So we don't have data on how this unfolds over time. Um, so I think we need to do more work. But the early evidence that we have, when we do pre-post design, we basically ask people to report how lonely they feel. We get them to interact with GPT for 15 minutes or so. Yeah. And then we ask them again, how lonely do you feel? It actually works. They feel yeah. less lonely. And yeah. uh, so uh, to me, the uh, application of AI in a relational context, whether yeah. those are business context, whether those are helping nurturing client relationships, uh, improving customer experiences, you know, or more, you know, on the social side, how do we uh, try to uh, use technology to alleviate some of the uh, societal crises that we experience in terms of um, well-being and mental health yeah. um, and maybe the um, you know polarization and uh, um, the you know the fragmentation of society and yeah. maybe you know the same tools you know same digital technologies that have been responsible for some of the damage may actually be also used to provide solutions too yeah i agree yeah hey this is this has been such a good conversation uh, stefana with all your insights and especially your uh, your research-driven um, uh, approach to all these topics, because I think that's something that is missing in a lot of contexts these days. It's a lot of, opinion, of opinions, and I'm, I, I love your work and, and the way you look at these topics. And I hope we can have more conversations uh, with more papers and studies that come out uh, from you uh, in, in the in the months and years to come. So, so thank, thank you. you a lot. I really appreciate it. I just want to also um, draw attention of the audience to our portal AI at Wharton. Uh, the Wharton yeah. School has been doing work on analytics and AI already for a long time. And I'm co-director of the center that we're trying to provide lots of information for the public. Lots Absolutely. of podcasts, lots of articles. So go there, it's all free. Absolutely. You can download stuff if you want to learn more about the impact of AI for business transformation. I think that's a great place to start. Yeah. I can personally also really recommend it. So uh, so definitely go there. So thanks, Stefano. Thank you, Matthijs. It was a pleasure. Thank you.